Welcome everybody to the Ranger Rendezvous podcast. You all are probably looking for source to get some education on your upcoming trek to Philmont. Well, we've got some good news for you. Four former Philmont Rangers, myself and three other really close friends of mine, have come together to put on this informative series of preparedness. We're going to cover topics such as itinerary planning, wilderness first response, team dynamics, gear, history, and a whole lot more. Everything concerning Philmont Scout Ranch, so that way you all are prepared for an incredible Philmont experience. Welcome to the Ranger Rendezvous podcast. Just a noted disclaimer, we are no longer affiliated with Philmont, and we're not supported by Philmont in any way, shape, or form. Philmont's rules are fluid. They change constantly. So the information that is presented in this podcast, please take note, is not should not be taken as current policy. Please contact Philmont Scout Ranch for all official inquiries. My name is Will Duggar. As a matter of introductions, I have had five summer seasons of experience at Philmont Scout Ranch from 2015 to 2019. I was a ranger at Philmont from 2015 to 2016. I was a ranger trainer in the years of 2017, 2018. During the fluke year of 2018, you all, many of you are familiar with Philmont history. We had the Ute Park fire. During that year, I was a timber stand improvement work crew foreman. And then in 2019, my final year at Philmont, I was the service academy coordinator for the joint training program between Philmont Scout Ranch and the three United States military academies. Now I'll be handing it off to Harrison. Hello, uh, my name is Harrison Evans. I also was a ranger at Philmont. I started my Philmont career in 2012 as a ranger, took a hiatus, came back in 2015 also as a ranger. Uh, then I was an RT in 2016, a Riado Trek coordinator and pass instructor in 2017. In 2018, I was an associate chief ranger up until the fire when I too became a, a timber sand improvement work crew foreman. Matt? Uh, I was also a ranger from 13 until 19. Uh, I was a ranger for two years and then a mountain trek ranger. And then in 16, 17, and 19, I was a ranger trainer. And uh, finally, my name is Eric Ash. I worked as a ranger from 2015 to 2017 and a ranger trainer in 2019. All right. So our uh, topic for today is focused on gear from Philmont. So this is crew gear, but the specifically the crew gear that Philmont can issue you. The first one we're going to be talking about is the Thunder Ridge Tent. The Thunder Ridge Tent is currently the only tent issued by Philmont. Some of you who have been there in years past may remember the A-frames. Those are not issued to crews anymore. These are much nicer. They're lighter, pack up smaller, a lot easier to put up. They're based on the MSR Hubba Hubba, but they are quite beefed up. These things are much more durable than the standard backpacking tent, which does mean they're a bit heavier. The weight has come down and has continued to decrease every summer that they've introduced new models. So they started out around six pounds, but they've come down over a pound at this point. The tents have a very waterproof floor, but Philmont does prefer that you use some kind of ground cloth with them. These tents get a lot of use each summer, and it really helps those tents last longer. Even if the tent floor is very strong, but putting that extra layer down allows them to last for years. And on the topic of durability, these things are scout-proof to an extent. That doesn't mean you can mistreat them, but they will hold up very well to a 12-day backpacking trek. A lot of crews like to bring their own tents because they are lighter, like the MSR tents are heavy tents. 
But if you're worried about the scouts being rough on gear, if you don't want to, you know, lend the kids a really nice backpacking tent or an ultralight tent that is much more fragile, the Thunder Ridge is a very good option. It's part of your fee to be able to get those tents, so you don't have to pay anything extra if you choose to use them compared to bringing your own. It's a pretty good option. They fit two comfortably, three if you're getting really friendly in there and willing to squeeze in, but two scouts per tent is the norm. Philmont does encourage all crews to double up when possible in their tents. There are some exceptions, of course, for YPT and if you've just got an odd number. The past few years, there have been some changes to YPT rules. I don't think that we need to go too deep into YPT, but just know that father-son pairs currently need to sleep in different tents, so an odd number crew or an even number crew even could end up needing an extra tent because of that rule. And if that's the case, instead of buying a new one, this is a pretty good option. I'd recommend that. You can actually buy these. The Thunder Ridge tents are modified hubba hubbas, so you can get the conventional tent from an REI or MSR, or these for a higher price, I believe, from the trading post at Philmont. I do not know the current price, but it is a higher than a standard tent price just for that extra material that they've put in there to make it more durable. Yeah, the tent was actually even designed by the same individual who designed the Hubba Hubba, the initial Hubba Hubba. His name's Terry Bro, and he actually used to come down to Philmont at the end of every summer just to see the wear and tear that the scouts had put on the tents. It was one of his sort of researching projects for MSR, he would come down and he would look at, you know, what were the pain points of the tents? How could he improve not only the Thunder Ridge tent for Philmont, which of course there have been several iterations over the years, but also MSR tents in general. So if you've ever slept in a Hubba Hubba, sleeping in a Thunder Ridge will be very familiar. The biggest difference I can probably say about them is that in a Hubba Hubba you have two side doors, whereas the Thunder Ridge only has a single door at the feet. The vestibule system is fairly similar. But otherwise, they're pretty much the same tent. Just slight difference on the doors and definitely some more durability baked into the tent. I forget exactly how much material is in there, but I do remember that in years past, when he'd come down to visit and talk about the tent and explain it so we could talk about it with crews, he would go into how many spoons you could make out of the floor and the tent body. really wish I wrote that down because I don't remember how many spoons you can make out of one of these things. I mean, the Hubba Hubba is designed for your average consumer whereas the Thunder Ridge is designed specifically for Philmont. So Philmont tents are undergoing use constantly throughout an entire summer, whereas your average Hubba Hubba that's sold in the market is not going to see that amount of use in its entire lifetime. So that's kind of where the durability concept came from, that and the fact that it's scouts using these. So they might not be taking best care of the gear as they learn how to take care of gear. Yeah, and on that topic, we've mentioned that these get a lot of use, and I just want to clarify that they are checked. Your ranger will go through checking them out when you get them. You're supposed to inspect them, wash them, and hang them up to dry when you bring them back. So they are getting washed, they are getting checked, and if you know you find that you're issued a tent that has a defective zipper or a hole in it, your ranger will just go back up to the outfitting services desk with you and get a new one. You mentioned it can sleep three. I just wanted to throw in a personal anecdote back when I was a pass instructor. All fellow pass instructors and myself decided to test out the theory. Now, mind you, we were 20-year-olds. I'm a fairly small individual, but I was with uh, Charlie Beezer and Kyle Anderson, who are not. They're, they're much, much more fit and have a little more mass than myself. 
we tried it out. It was doable. However, sleeping three in one of those is not the most comfortable experience. But if you have a couple 14-year-olds, it probably would be fine. But again, I'd err on the side of making sure that you, you do two to a tent. I also think it's important to note that these tents do not come with their own stakes. So you can set them up with around a minimum of six stakes, but to fully stake out the rainfly, you should bring eight per tent. The other value add to the MSR Thunder Ridge is its ability to be easily disassembled and split apart amongst a pair of individuals. To Eric's point, really the only gear that you would have to invest in this tent yourself would be the tent stakes. But when it comes to gear maintenance for the tent as a whole, the tent itself can be easily diversified and split apart between you and one other individual. So the amount of volume that you're bearing on your back when you pack out one of these tents when you're bugging out of a campsite when you're hitting the trail is very minimal as opposed to a tent that whether you might have some apparatuses attached that you might have to keep together with the tent the tent can be easily split apart and disassembled and it reduces the weight on your shoulders and particularly that comes as a surprise especially when these tents are reinforced as Matt had mentioned earlier and Harrison as well that these tents are designed for longevity in austere environments so in light of that fact in light of how the tent can be so easily disassembled into multiple parts really you're getting your money's worth out of this tent when you're paying the fee for attending the ranch it's highly recommended that you take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah, along the same line, when I was a pass instructor on the road talking to advisors every single day, I'd get a lot of questions about, you know, should I bring my own tent? Should I use the Belmont tent? And my recommendation 100% of the time was use the Thunder Ridge. I have my own tent and I love my tent, but if I get the option of choosing to put the wear on Belmont's tent, which I'm already paying for, I'm going to choose that option rather than taking my tent out there and putting extra wear on that tent that I use on a regular basis. I can save it for my adventures back home and just enjoy the Thunder Ridge while I'm out there. If you do want to see what a Thunder Ridge generally looks like, it's not easy to find one outside of Philmont. Uh, you know, they, they have sold them, so if you have somebody in the local area that has one, then you can check it out there. But REI should usually have some Hubba Hubbas set up depending on your local store. And you can go in and look at them and just get an idea. The, the pole structure is the same. Again, everything's pretty much the same except for the entry. So you can kind of get an idea of what the interior will look like and the general size of the tent. So the second piece of Philmont provided gear that we're going to talk about is the dining fly. All crews are required to bring a dining fly to Philmont. And the dining flies that Philmont provides to crews like the Thunder Ridge tent, are manufactured by MSR specifically for Philmont. Their dimensions are 12 feet by 10 feet, and they weigh a little over 2 pounds. They, like the tents, do not come with stakes, and they will also need paracord to be fully set up. However, just with about 50 feet of paracord and 6 stakes and a couple trekking poles, uh, you can fully set that up. You can also tie it off on trees and get really creative with its setup. It doesn't ha just have to be an A-frame. It can be set up as a lean-to, for example, just whatever kind of your campsite demands. Now, the purpose of the dining fly is to be used as a shelter in camp and as storage for small gear items overnight. However, that gear does not include backpacks. Backpacks are typically put under their own pack covers and then scattered around against leaning against trees. 
The reason for that is that if someone has forgotten a smellable in the pack, they aren't all clustered together underneath the dining fly where multiple packs can be damaged by a mini bear or an actual bear. And just to add to that, the change, some of you may recognize that that has changed from the past. It used to be that the crew would put all of their packs under the fly at night. And what happened was when people would forget things, bears would go and they'd dig through all the packs or at least dig through the pack pile to get to the one that had food in it or some smellable in it and you know that ruins a whole bunch of packs instead of just one but bears are also smart so if they start associating those with food if people leave a bunch of food in there then they get torn up as well and they go for pack piles so spreading them out one person gets their pack torn up if they forget but it doesn't cause a problem where people who in the future do everything right might have a bear come and tear up their fly and their packs so that typically begs the question with crews then, what kind of gear do we keep underneath the dining fly? The first option that I'm always going to throw out is toilet paper. If someone has need of toilet paper in the middle of the night, they need to know exactly where that is, and they don't have to go waking up people to find it in their backpacks. If you just have it kept in a Ziploc bag underneath the dining fly, it is ready to go for anyone that needs it. Past that, a lot of crews will just keep their camp chairs set up underneath there for the morning. They'll keep boots, maybe boots just to keep drying so that they don't have to lug their boots and camp shoes over to their tents to store underneath the vestibule at night. And then just other small gear items. Sometimes stoves and fuel bottles will also be stored under there if they aren't already stored in the fire ring. Also, along the same vein as the stoves, a big purpose for this is to be able to cook outside of the rain. If it's raining and you don't have any sort of shelter set up, then you're going to be cooking in the rain. Whereas if you have the shelter, the dining fly set up, then you're able to actually cook under it without getting wet. And it's a much more pleasant experience. The only thing is, especially with how low it can get to the ground, you don't want to be cooking in the center of the dining fly. You want to be cooking on one of the ends because some of the noxious gases can get trapped under there can cause some issues but it's definitely a great place to cook the dining fly as a whole just provides a really good opportunity for congregation for the crew whether that be in a typical patrol setting where you're cooking a meal together you're eating a meal together or from a much more critical standpoint if you are in some sort of an emergency you need some sort of shelter whether it be for a victim of a situation, an injury, some sort, heat exhaustion, dehydration, or a much more critical situation, it provides an opportunity for the entire unit to coalesce around one particular area. And that's also really helpful for staff as well to identify locations of which crews are positioned, as opposed to either choosing to forego your dining fly or use it for other purposes can take away from the element of keeping the crew together in one universal location. So the dining fly also serves as a contingency of sorts, uh, in addition to the typical purposes for what a dining fly is used for. Yeah, and we've already mentioned that you can use trekking poles to set these up. Most crews will have at least one person using trekking poles these days, and they're set up so that the chances of the trekking poles getting bent or broken are fairly low, so you don't have to worry too much about that. But if you don't want to use your trekking poles to set the thing up, or nobody in your crew actually uses them, you do have the option to take collapsible poles from outfitting services as well. They're heavier than trekking poles, they're a single-use item, like you can't really use them as a trekking pole, but they are another option for you. The other item that many of you will have noticed already in going over your packing list is an 8-quart pot that's provided to you at Philmont. 
Crews are provided two eight-quart pots, one for cooking, one for cleaning. The reason for that being as you're cooking in one pot, you're keeping all of your foodstuffs isolated to that one individual unit, as opposed to the other pot, which is utilized specifically for washing detergent, for keeping all your cleaning materials isolated to one particular pot so as not to cross-contaminate. For cleaning, dishes are washed in the cooking pot and they're rinsed out of the clean pot, the cleaning pot that's utilized for sanitizing and boiling water for the next meal. The pot without a lid approximately weighs about a pound and four ounces. A lot of crews, when they are faced with working with the pots, the biggest fear is taking up on pack volume. The pots fit inside most backpacks and they can easily be filled with smaller gear with items like bear ropes, bear bags, food bags, first aid kits, etc. The pot, if utilized correctly, will serve to the benefit of a couple things. One, for like I mentioned before, for cargo carrying capacity, but also the main reason why eight-quart pots are utilized in the cooking method at Philmont is to encourage the patrol method where crews will be able to work and cook together as a collective unit. The biggest impulse that a lot of crews have is to get rid of pots and utilize smaller apparatuses for cooking. While, again, unfortunately, things can't be controlled outside of the ranger's purview, what this does is this takes away from the crew dynamic and building structure that is enhanced when you utilize eight-quart pots. And also, in addition to that, eight-quart pots utilized with MSR stoves makes for a very good apparatus use as the MSR stoves are fit to utilize uh, and to, to support the eight-quart pots when cooking. So there, there are many different value adds when it comes to the eight-quart pots, uh, but primarily... They're split apart for two purposes, cooking and cleaning, and the underlying common denominator is that they encourage the patrol method when cooking out in the backcountry. Yeah, to follow up on that, the larger pot is actually really nice for doing dishes, like washing individual mess kits, especially if the crew has brought plates. Most crews will stick to bowls or some kind of bowl-like thing. But I've had several instances where people have brought plates, and it's really nice that you can fit pretty much anything inside those eight-quart pots, and that allows you to wash dishes inside instead of, you know, putting a bit of water and swirling it around outside the pot and potentially spilling food water all over your campsite or your boots. Makes it a lot easier to clean up. Additionally, with the cooking, it really is a lot easier to cook in the pot than some of the methods I've seen or some people have talked about. There are other ways to cook food backpacking, and there are other ways that work great. There are other ways that work for smaller groups, but for a large, you know, 12-person or even a small group, it works really well. Some of the Philmont meals produce a lot of food volume-wise, and a smaller pot may not be able to physically fit it all. Additionally, the bags that Philmont uses, some of them are not the standard bags you'd buy this food at REI with. Uh, I have had advisors in the past try to prove that you can just boil water or put boiling water in the bags and cook the food in the bag. And I have seen that end up with spaghetti in the dirt as the glue failed. So outfitting services claims are different bags. I think that that is probably the case. So the Philmont method works. Not every other method you see on the internet or see recommended on a backpacking forum does. And I think it's important to note that the Philmont method is designed specifically for use at Philmont. Not to say you can't use it elsewhere, but for example, when I go backpacking, I'm not using the Philmont method in Mount Rainier National Park, for example. Like, I'm going to be using a different method than you might be using at Philmont, but it's kind of one of those situations where, you know, they have so many people going through every year 
it's kind of a tried and true and tested method and it works. Yeah. If it didn't work, they wouldn't have been doing it for that long. And it's one of those things that I feel like the ranch gets a little bit of pushback on from people who have backpacked elsewhere. But the, the fact of the matter is that Belmont is not the same thing as every national park in the country. It's, it's not the same sort of backpacking experience. And that kind of lends to a different style of backpacking and one that generally involves teamwork and the patrol or crew method. And it's also not a uniquely Philmont method. I've seen some posts on the internet, particularly Reddit, kind of calling out Philmont saying that it's some weird system that they've thought up for some reason and refused to change, which isn't really the case. It is used elsewhere. I remember when I was in college, the university club I was in would go on backpacking trips. The method that they used, and it's not something I taught them being like, oh, look at this cool method I learned at scout camp, but the one that was their go-to was the Philmont method or the same thing as the Philmont method. Yeah, to tag on to both points by Matt and Harrison, in case anybody is listening to this and they think that we're bluffing, the method that I use individually myself when I'm out my own backpacking adventures is not the Philmont method. And that serves to Harrison's point that the strategies and the techniques that you would utilize as an individual do work. And for those who are considering that, we're here to tell you that they do work. But when you're working with such a volume in this population, such as a crew of 8 or 12, you'll find that in addition to what Matt was pointing out about how food that is given to you, provided to you at Philmont, produces a large volume of food. In addition to that, you're also developing a lot of waste in your wake. As opposed to one unit of which you're cleaning out all of your dishes out of, you now have 8 to 12 different dishes that you're having to clean out as your own individual. Waste is more mass-produced. You have a lot more trash. There's a lot greater of a mess to clean up. And it just increases, again, as we talked about with the dining fly, it increases the risk of producing smellables that you may or may not be picking up. So in other words, it draws attention to your own crew from a perspective of wildlife in your austere environment. So working in the Philmont method also not only provides you the luxury of keeping all of that in-house, but also provides you the safety degree as well, in which, in my opinion, anybody who is concerned about the safety of their crew would want to adhere to. Yeah, I mean, there's some, I guess, suggestions by various people that are interested in alternative cooking methods at Philmont to bring their own bags. If the Philmont bags don't work, if the glue fails, then why don't I just bring my own bag? And I think that brings back the point that Will was just making, which is you're just going to add a whole lot of waste into the system. A bowl that you clean is a lot easier to get all of the food out of than a bag. Your bag is going to have some additional food. That's going to be weight that you're carrying. That's going to be weight that Philmont ends up carrying out of the backcountry, which costs fuel. And so there's some really well thought out rationales for why this eight quart pot method is the method that's preferred by Philmont and the method that's used at Philmont. And there are certain methods that Philmont disallows for logistical reasons that might be beyond just the most practical or the easiest thing to do at a campsite. Another thing that Philmont provides to each and every crew is Micropure. Micropure is a water treatment pill. And, and basically what it is, is you're pulling water from the streams or water sources taking that water away from the stream, and then dropping a, a chlorine-based tablet into the water. And the reason we do it away from the streams is because if you drop that chlorine-based tablet into the stream, it would destroy the ecosystem. There's kind of a, a little bit of a debate between, you know, do I bring a water pump? Do I not? Do I use MicroPure? And I think the definitive answer, based off all research, is that you should, at the very least, be using MicroPure. 
So really, it's a question of whether you bring the pump and use MicroPure with the pump, or you just exclusively use MicroPure. The reason being is that pumps aren't small enough. The filters in them aren't small enough to filter out most viruses. They're less than 0.1 micron or smaller sometimes. And so you're getting the bacteria, you're getting the protozoa, but you're not getting all of the viruses. And viruses are definitely a component that you want to get out of your water. MicroPure doesn't filter your water. It just shocks it and kills everything. So you're not going to have the viruses extracted from your water magically by these tablets. But what's going to happen is those viruses are going to be dead. They're going to be inert, and they're not going to hurt you when they go into your body. It's really important to treat water at Philmont. Some people might have the perception that mountain streams are cleaner than, you know, the bayou. But the fact of the matter is that Philmont is a working cattle and horse ranch. And for that reason, there are potentials for fecal matter from those animals to enter the streams and water sources around Philmont. I mentioned that it was a chlorine tablet, so there is a slight chlorine taste. From a personal perspective, it's not near the, the awful taste of iodine. I honestly don't really taste it that strongly. And then I have heard, although this is anecdotal, that you open the lid for a time interval in order to dissipate some of the taste. I don't really know the effectiveness of that, but it's worked for some people and, you know, maybe the placebo will work for some of your pickier scouts. If you really, really hate to have anything in your water, you might want to bring a water filter because otherwise you're going to be grabbing small particulate from the water sources. But to be honest, most of the water you're consuming at Philmont comes out of a spigot at one of the staffed camps. So you're going to need a filter if you don't want to have anything in your water, especially if you're pulling from a source. But there's a high chance, depending on your itinerary, that you may never even pull from a water source other than a spigot. There are some spigots that require you to micropure afterwards, but they wouldn't have the particulate matter that you would find in, for example, a mountain stream. You know, micropure is something that I continue to use for my own individual person. Like Harrison had mentioned, it does leave a slight chlorine taste. Perhaps it's just my own palate but I barely taste anything. So I am nowhere near worried about that. And I know that that is a concern that a lot of people have, but even with the chlorine taste, there is no adverse side effects to that taste if you do manage to pick up on that. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And, and this has always been something that has puzzled me whenever someone has brought that concern up. Perhaps it's for fear that it might accelerate other bodily functions such as bowel movements. I'm not entirely sure what the fear behind the chlorine taste is, but even if you do taste it, there is no adverse side effect to it. And I would much rather have that than have an adverse side effect by choosing not to utilize MicroPure. To Harrison's point about how it is an active and working cattle ranch, all of us have seen you know, up to carcasses, elk carcasses in rivers that we ourselves have drawn water from. So there is a significant value add both from, from a security standpoint and also from a health perspective as well by choosing to utilize MicroPure. And I know that there are some filters that are out there. I'm not familiar with particular product names that do have similar functions of attempting to remove viruses through the use of a filter. However, MicroPure has proven to remove upwards to 99.9% .9 of viruses that it, it comes into contact with in waterly bodies. So from our own perspective, it's almost essential to use when you're out, and particularly in an environment such as a cattle ranch. And I mean... 
I don't know if this is true anymore, but at least at one point, the MicroCure rep uh, indicated that the U.S. military even used the product in Iraq to help filter water for their soldiers in the field. So if the military can trust this particular tablet to keep their soldiers safe, I think it's a fairly sure deal. For anybody who is a brand loyalist, the MicroPure tablets that Philmont uses is manufactured by Katata. Hello, this is Harrison from Post. And as Eric later on correctly pointed out. I, I just want to point out, Will mentioned Katadin. It's pronounced Katadine. This confusion arose from the fact that Katadine is a Swiss company and Katadin is an American mountain in Maine. Sorry for the confusion, but the brand that Will is referring to at this instance is called Katadine. I know that that is a highly popular brand that is used by many outdoor aficionados. So if, you, uh, if you're loyal to a brand, uh, you can't get much better than that. Yeah, the package, I believe, also says that it takes four hours to work, which is not accurate for the water that we're dealing with at Philmont. In most cases, if you go find a mud puddle and fill up from a mud puddle, then yeah, you do want to let it sit for the full four hours. But that's because the turbidity of water, so like the more stuff, like particulate stuff you have in the water, just takes longer and longer. But it really is not a factor if you're filling up from a stream. Just some other safety things. We called it a pill at the start of this, water purification pill. That doesn't mean you should eat it or take it as a pill. If you drink unpurified water, it's not going to fix the problem. Other than that, it's really easy to use, works quickly, works in camelbacks, works in any kind of water bottle. The taste decreases the longer you let it sit. So if you let it sit overnight, it'll be pretty much chlorine-free by the morning. You won't really notice. All right, so the last thing we wanted to talk about today is backpacks. Most people will come to Philmont with a backpack that they've been using for training treks and that they know fairly well. That isn't an option for some people. Backpacks can get pretty expensive, and we recognize that Philmont is already a pretty expensive trip, especially for a scout if they're paying their own way or if they've got very limited financial assistance to get there. So it's not really a solution to training, but once a scout gets there, they do have the option of renting a pack while they're on the trail. And they do have a couple different options, so it's not like they're getting some old-fashioned, you know, no-one-else-wants-it external frame. They do have external frames, but most of the packs that I've seen rented out are actually internal frames made by Osprey. So they are pretty much the same thing that you'd be getting if you bought your pack at REI and brought it. Just a bit beefier, uh, intended as a guide pack so they can last longer, take more abuse because it's being used repeatedly over summer, summer after summer. The cost for a rental is $30 for the entire week. That's just our uh, most recent information. It has gone up. I remember that it used to be, I believe, $28. So it may increase by the time that you guys hit the trail, but it still is going to be a lot cheaper than buying a new pack. They are also good packs. So if somebody has a choice between a very marginal pack, I've seen some that are from Walmart, and people come to Philmont with the best gear that they can afford, typically. And sometimes that gear is not what you'd want. It's uh, kind of substandard. But, you know, it's what they were able to get. So if somebody has the option between renting a good pack from Philmont for $30 or buying a pack that may be okay or good enough at Walmart or some other store, it really is better to opt for that good pack from Philmont. They'll help you get it set up. They'll help the scout fit it to themselves so they can wear it comfortably and they get a pack that fits. 
you know it's going to be durable and it's going to have a nice hip belt, will support the weight, will carry whatever the Scout is carrying load-wise more comfortably than some of the ones that I've seen from, I keep picking on Walmart, but from Walmart. For those who have a little trouble understanding about like, well, why shouldn't I just go and buy a pack? If I'm going to wind up doing scouting, then I'm probably going to wind up needing a pack anyway. That's not necessarily true. That is sermon on the activities of your own home unit. However, think of a pack like you're hiking. If you choose to purchase a hiking boot immediately before you go out on a 73-mile trek, you're not zeroed in on the boot. You're not zeroed in on the pack. You haven't broken it in. The pack works the same way as a boot and into a way, particularly for internal frames, it breaks into the mold of your back. Going to REI and pulling a 60-liter pack off of the shelf, going to the airport the next day for film on is probably not the best option. Granted that you're kind of doing the same thing by renting a pack, but also these packs have been broken in by other people out on the trail. So there's a degree of comfort to utilizing one of the rental packs as well. It does make sense. If you haven't backpacked before, or if you're not planning on backpacking again, then there's really no reason for you to make the extra expenditure if you're if you're not planning on making this a full-time hobby for you. Yeah, and a pack is something where it's worth going and talking to somebody at the gear store that you're buying it from. If you've never bought one before, they'll help you fit it. They'll help you find one that fits your body type. Some packs are narrower, some packs are taller. Most of them are adjustable these days. If you rent one of the Jansport packs, they are very adjustable. But it is nice to have somebody who really has experience doing that and knows what they're looking for with how the pack should sit on your back to fit that to you. And that goes for renting a pack. The outfitting services will people, they'll help you. If you get it from a gear store, they'll help you. If you have one already and you don't think it's very comfortable, your ranger can help you as well. They can't fix everything, but they can fit it as best they can. It's like a boot. You want it to fit, you want it to be broken in. Just to follow up with what Matt was kind of saying about folks bringing packs that might be substandard to film on. I've also seen it where people have brought packs that are maybe have been used for other purposes like hunting. And so they've had packs with animal blood on them, which would make them a smellable, which would make them be required to be put up with the bear bags every single night. So that's another case where you would probably just consider renting a pack for the duration of your trek rather than bothering yourself with the hassle of having a smellable backpack for the entirety of your time at Philmont. I do want to circle back to one point on choosing to buy it. We're talking about renting, but if you are adamant about foregoing the rental option, and like Matt had mentioned before, these Kelty, Osprey, and Jansport packs are quality packs. So if you choose to buy a pack, then I highly encourage you to choose a pack that is well worth your time and your money. Don't buy a pack just because you feel like you need a pack to get out to film on. If you're going for the cheapest option, you're going to get what you pay for. If you're going to buy a pack, then make sure that you're buying a pack that is substantial, that fits your body type, that is capable of holding the weight that you're choosing to carry out with you on the trail. There are many different factors when it comes to actually purchasing a pack versus renting a pack where these packs have been proven to work out on the trail. So there is that degree to take into consideration as well if you're choosing to go that route. I caution you on that. because it, it, it will pay out whether you choose to rent or buy. Get quality. Another use case for this rental system, you mentioned 60 liters, right? 60 liters is mm-hmm. not something you're going to use on your average weekend or backpacking trip. 
And so the type of pack you might be using at Philmont, and, and I'm not saying everybody needs to buy a 60 liter or rent a 60 liter pack for Philmont. That's not. We'll get into personal gear in a future episode, but a 12 day trek is not going to be the same thing as your normal use case for a pack that you might buy. So it might be worth renting a pack, even if you already have a pack that you use, like, I don't know, a 30, maybe even 40 liter pack that you use for the weekends. You might need something a little more substantial for this trek, and that might be another reason to rent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more to that point. Well, we hope that this was an informative episode. We are planning to do a lot more. We're going to be covering a lot more topics, like I mentioned in the beginning of this episode. The general goal for this podcast is to gear you towards a mindset of preparedness for your trek. We will continue to put out episodes periodically throughout the rest of the year to better prepare you for an exceptional experience at Philmont. So thank you all for listening to the Ranger Rendezvous podcast, and we will see you in the next one.